0: Welcome back to the Experience Growth Podcast, where our collective mission is to build experiential businesses, while more importantly, living big experiential lives. Now, we do that ultimately by learning. Leaders are learners, and whether we're leading ourselves or families, small businesses or massive companies, being on the forefront of leading a movement of building experiential lives is our goal. Uh, I am your host today, Chris Suarez, and today's guest was actually a surprising one for me. I, I got introduced to Tom Singer, who you will be introduced to in just a moment as a speaker, as a writer. He runs and hosts actually three different podcasts, one specifically that we'll dive into later in the show. But I listen to his TED talk about the art of giving small. And my goal when we started our conversation was really to sit there and and have a conversation about wealth building and how wealth building can lead to giving. He has started or, or coined this concept of compounded generosity. So be ready uh, to listen to his story about what led to this concept of compounding generosity, how that little giving can make massive impact on on money people's worlds. But then the conversation continues and we talk about human connection, which is perfect, right? Because one of our pillars of experiential living is is relationships. And, And he explains to us his viewpoint on connection. And we go deep on this concept uncommon connections. This conversation around uncommon connections was pivotal for me. And I'm excited for each of you to hear his perspective, but also what the alternative is. And then we end our conversation with actually the whole purpose of our show. He shares his change in perspective when he turned 50 and what that meant. And we'll dive into this concept of saying yes to things, saying yes to things that maybe previously in our life we we said no to or just ignored. I loved this conversation and I'm excited to share it with each of you. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and I'm super excited to introduce you to our community today. And And that's because there are, are certain pieces of your life that line up so um, brilliantly with uh, really part of our our mission here at, at experience growth is is building these experiential lives and some of those pillars you've done you've done just spot on we talk a lot about wealth um, here in building wealth more importantly it's what we do with that and i'd love to start our conversation i came across a, a term that i had not heard before and, and so i'm going to just say you coined it and it was this idea of compounded generosity maybe you could share what that means to you and and, and actually why it means something so much.
1: Sure. Well, compounded generosity is a term that I came up with, I don't know, a decade ago. And it was because my wife and I had gone through an experience. Our youngest daughter was born with a pretty serious medical condition. She had to have really extensive surgery when she was six months old. And to give you the short version, they had to remove all the bones on the top of her skull, Hmm. leaving just skin over brain until the bones could grow back. Or she would have ended up with an elephant man-like the deformity. Her she would have had a cranioabnormality in the way her skull would have looked, she would have been teased, et cetera. And it was a pretty risky thing to do. We did a somewhat new surgery. She was only the 13th or 14th kid, wow. um, maybe, if you will, to have this new type of surgery that they did. And everything turned out great. And so in the long run, she's now almost 20 years old. She goes to an Ivy League college. She's super smart. You would never know by looking at her that she would have had these problems but we realized we were very fortunate, but we're not wealthy. We're not, we don't come from families that have our names on the sides of hospitals. And we wanted to do something to give back. And what we realized is you don't have to be rich to impact a charity. You don't have to be rich to wait till you're totally wealthy to start giving back. So at the time I was starting my business 12, I guess it's 12 years ago as a professional speaker. And I still was working full-time in a marketing role. And we decided we would take just a couple of percentage points. Every time I was paid to give a speech, we would give a little bit of that money to a fund at the then brand new children's hospital that was opened in our hometown. When Kate was born, we had to travel across the country to have the best doctors and the best facilities. And so we started giving $50 checks, $20 checks, $100 checks. And over the course of several years, it's now added up to over $70,000 between the hospital, Dell Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas, where we live. And we started the same type of fund at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, where Kate was operated on. And we would give along the way just a little bit of our income. And had we given a $50 check, nobody would have noticed. But you do that for a decade and you have some clients who donate and things like that. And it's slowly approaching a six-figure number. All of a sudden, that becomes a real way of giving. And we did it, we didn't set up a foundation, we just set up an endowment to the foundations that existed at the children's hospital. So much like compounded interest, we teach young people start saving and investing when you're young and you'll have a lot of money when you retire because it will continue to grow, you'll continue to add to it. I talk about compounded generosity being the same thing that if you just make it a habit that you're always gonna give just a little bit, even when times get tough, maybe you cut back the percentage points, Uh, and just give smaller amounts. But if you do it over a lifetime, all of a sudden it's going to be a big number. Yeah. I
0: love that. I'm a dad of two little girls. So when I I heard the story about your little girl and the decisions that you had to make, I loved, I loved how you approached that decision. Maybe I can just ask you that question. It was a fairly risky surgery, right? So there was risk going in and making the decision to, yes, we're going to, to have our six month old baby girl have this surgery. The the alternative was watching her grow up with, with this abnormality. And you and your wife sat down and, and said, I think it might've been your wife, actually, that that sort of forward tripped the decision and how each would play out. Do you want to walk through that? I thought it was really powerful.
1: Yeah, we were essentially given two choices and we were diagnosed late. So this decision had to be made really quick. Most kids who have this thing, it's called uh, sagittal synostosis. It's the, the bones between the soft spots on the top of your head should be free-floating plates and they were fused together. Hmm. So Kate's head couldn't grow from side to side. It could only grow from front to back. And so it was, and would continue to get worse. A baby's head is pretty small. It quadruples in size or at least doubles in size. I don't remember the exact numbers. So the abnormality that was already present was going to get much worse. So we could do nothing and raise a kid who would be teased. There'd be uh, possibly some brain damage from pressure inside the, the vault of the head, but more importantly, she would have this elephant man-like head thing going on. And it's hard enough to be a kid. You don't want to be teased. The other option was by six months old, they could remove about half the top of the bones in her skull. And they told us that they should grow back. Now, the part that wasn't really, wasn't really uh, uh, strong in that was should. It's like, yes, most likely the bones will grow back. Unfortunately, they did. We were given those two choices and my wife and I talked about it. And one of the things we came up with was, what would 19-year-old Kate, or I think at the time we thought 16-year-old Kate, but she's 19 now, what would we think 19-year-old Kate would want us to do? Would she look back if she had this deformity and been teased and and everything else and say, you could have done something. And there was a little bit of risk. It wasn't highly risky, but there was a 10% chance something minor or major could go wrong. And it was just one of those things that we realized that if you were a teenager, and you then discovered that this could have been corrected yeah. when I was a baby, she'd never forgive us. And that was our goal as parents is we had to make the decisions that our kids would want us to make when they were older. And in this case, we faced a decision that was scary and it, when it was horrific for us. It was probably the worst thing we ever went through. And she had to wear a helmet for six months while the bones grew back and she had to be checked by the doctor. We had to go to San Diego every year until she was about 14 years old. About 14 or 15, your skull is done growing. And uh, so we had to go every year. Now, the, the upside to that is we had a family vacation to San Diego every single year. So that's the joke. Both of my kids, when the doctor said, you don't have to come back anymore, both my kids were like, oh no, we, yeah, right. we want to come to San Diego yeah, right. every year. Yeah, I think that I,
0: that speaks to to the experiences and the, the culture that you've raised uh, um, with your kids. I, I think that decision-making that you made that rhythm or even that model, perhaps of of the decision-making. When I heard it, I thought, Wow. Like real tough spot to be, but what a brilliant way to look at that. And I think that's applicable in so many areas of our life as well. What would that 16 year old or that 16 years in the future, what would we think back about this decision? How would we feel? What would we regret potentially, or or how would someone else feel in in our interaction with them? I thought that was wildly valuable. Now
1: compounding. Oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing that, that we always say is that Kate was six months old when she had this surgery. Kate will never remember any of it but my wife and I will never forget. And that's what drove us to finding a way to to give something back. Yeah, I love that. I love that.
0: So compounding generosity, obviously it's become a a big part of what you've been able to do for others. How do you believe that that concept and that, uh, belief has affected Kate and even the
1: rest of your family? I think we just have tried to lead by example on it. I really believe that there's a lot of people who think I can't give enough to make a difference. So, you know, they, they don't. But most of the donations in our country uh, and probably the world, we hear a lot about the wealthiest families in society. We hear a lot about big foundations and the giant donations they give. But most of the giving takes place from average people who give $25, $100, $50, But what I discovered is if you give a little over here, a little over there, a little over here, it's great, but you can't track it by picking one cause and really being serious about it over a lifetime that can, you know, add up and grow to a big thing. So I do think both my kids have this understanding that there's more to life than than just you. We struggled for a few years when I started my own business and went full time. And we had a friend who said, well, you're going to stop giving to charity while you're building your business. And it was only a couple little percentage points. And I said, no, every time I give a speech, we're going to write a little check. And some of our friends were like, well, that's stupid. You shouldn't do that. And my older daughter was like, yeah, why are we doing that? We could use that money for things. And I just thought it was a good thing to do. Now, there have been times over the past 12 years where we haven't always given, but we get back on track as soon as we can with that. And we tried the pandemic the last year. I hadn't written a check in a while. So I just booked a speaking gig. And as soon as I get that check, I'll send a check off because now I'm starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. But, you know, I can't say how it impacts my, my kids, but they're both really good kids. They both work hard. They both are getting good educations and one's out of college now and working. And hopefully every little thing we did was just leading by example, not just this one thing. Yeah,
0: I think one of the lessons, if we believe in compounding any anything, It means that we need to have a a long-term play, right? Our view has to be the future and not right now. And I think that's a valuable lesson for for our community and and for human beings because it delays gratification potential. But right now, when you look at the endowment and when you look at what you've created over a long stretch of time, some people might say, well, some people write that check every day. But it was that incremental growth in in impact that I think is incredibly valuable.
1: And I think I try to apply that in, in how I've grown my speaking career. And other things that I do in my business life is I realize that it's a long, this is a long-term play. If I had just looked at the first year of trying to go and be a a professional speaker, I would have quit. But, you know, 12 years into it, there've been ups and downs. Currently we've been through a down, but, you know, I'm only 55. I figure I've got another 15 years that I can play this game, you know, so it's a long-term play. And I try to do that with the other things that I approach in my life is the long tail is, is an important way to go. Yeah. I love that. Actually,
0: let's talk about your speaking. One of, one of your messages that we appreciate here, and, or we will when our community learns about it, because one of the key pillars to an experiential life is relationships. You talk about, and, and again, coined again, the phrase, uncommon connections. Uncommon connections. What does that mean? What can we do with that?
1: So Chris, if you think about this, you probably have a LinkedIn account. And most people I talk to And I say, how many connections do you have on LinkedIn? It's somewhere between hundreds and thousands of connections. But then when I say, how many of those people have you interacted with in the last 10 days, both professionally and personally, and how many people have you referred business to in the last two weeks? And how many of those people have referred business to you or talked you up some way in the community? And most people look at me like none or or a couple or whatever. So, We get very focused on how many followers we have, how many likes, links, shares, and follows we have on all these social media platforms. But the reality is that those people, if you don't have an interactive, engaged relationship where you're looking out for each other and there's long-term, mutually beneficial success ahead for both of you, then it's just another click. It's just another link. And so I think what we've done in our society inadvertently is we've created this world where we have lots of connections that mean very little. And so many people use you know, LinkedIn, they use it as a way just to promote their stuff. They want a lot of followers so more people will see what they post, but they themselves don't go and like or share or comment on anyone else's stuff. And that's, we've gotten push oriented through social media and it's about the followers. I, I talked to a gentleman who sells marketing services to professional speakers and he was trying to get me on as a client. And I was somebody he wanted to be able to have in his stable of speakers, he would market but it wasn't cheap it was kind of expensive and i know the business there's no guarantees you're going to get work and so he was guaranteed to make like several thousand dollars a month but he may never book me i was like eh. and he kept telling me yes but in the last 3 months i've added 3000 linkedin followers i was like so what if they're not commenting if they're not engaged so i started looking at his linkedin posts and he had two likes or no likes or no comments and it's so you have 3000 new followers i think he had like 10000 followers in general That means nothing. And we have to be very cautious to think, wow, this person has so many followers because a lot of the people buy their followers on Twitter and stuff like that, they're not even real. And so most connections are just common. They're just likes, links, shares, and follows. It's those uncommon connections where you can have those really exceptional relationships with people who have your back and you have their back. And I teach this stuff and I only have a handful. I probably don't have more than five or six people who I have that type of a relationship where I'm referring them, they're referring me, we're talking each other up. If, if I start a new project, they talk about it on their social media. And we need to have more of those people. But in order to do it, it takes time. You have to be a giver, you have to be cultivating, and you have to have that long-term look. Yeah. What do you think prevents that? I think one of the things is we've been seduced by social media. We get very up on the dopamine hits of our people following me, our people commenting on me, And so it really becomes, how can I show off what I do? I mean, how many people do you follow on social media and they show a picture of themselves sitting next to their fancy car or if they have the honor to go on a jet? And it's true, I've posted those pictures. My friend, Aaron King calls it a braggy post. And I started thinking about it. We all do it. It's the culture of social media. It's what it's about. But the reality is that's not how you build relationships. You don't build relationships by bragging to people. It's the same problem we have with the idea of the elevator pitch, right? I I think it's important to be able to clearly and concisely tell people who you are and what you do well. But the way we teach the elevator pitch in business networking, people mistaken it. That's how they're supposed to lead. So the idea of the elevator pitch, if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, most people do. If you got on an elevator on the 30th floor, how could you clearly and concisely tell people who you were by the time you reached the lobby? But Chris, if we got onto an elevator together and I realized that you booked speakers for a big event, and I was like, oh my God, Chris could hire me. And the doors closed on the 30th floor. And I flicked the switch in my back and said, Hey, Chris, my name's Tom Singer. I speak at conferences. I've been doing it for 12 years, probably over a thousand presentations, blah, 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 just verbal vomit all over you. What would you do, Chris, when we got to the lobby and the doors open? Run. Number one answer that I get, and I've asked audiences of up to a thousand people this question, everybody says run. Never in me 10 years using this example, no one has ever said, I'd take you to Starbucks to learn more about you. Ever. People say run, get away from you, roll my eyes, whatever. So the problem is if you lead with yourself and hey, here's who I am in a quippy little fun elevator pitch of why I'm awesome, it doesn't draw anybody in. So In order to draw them in, you have to make it about the other person, which means instead of starting with your elevator pitch, and there's a time when you will, you'll get your turn to talk. There's a time for it. You really should start by asking people questions about who they are, how they got started in the industry, what they're doing, because when people know you care, now they're more interested in you, but that's how you build relationships is you got to make it about the other person. And the problem is, I don't know, made up statistic, seven out of 10 people you meet, you can invest time in them. You can send them notes. You can try to do it they're not gonna respond. And so people give up, but the meat is in the three out of 10 people who you do put in the time and effort on, who come back and wanna put some time and effort into you. And even those people aren't necessarily all gonna become your best friends. You're not gonna develop the uncommon connection that is so valuable, but you gotta keep trying. We're coming out of the pandemic. Human connection is more important now than it's ever been. And people have been lonely and disconnected. A lot of people are telling me they feel socially awkward, so investing in people has a really good payoff, but not every person you invest in is going to pay off. So you got to just keep going. Yeah. Tom, I think that message is probably, and it's been your message
0: for a bit, but it's probably more important right now than it's ever been. On topic, I recently read Dr. Marissa King's new book called Social Chemistry. And she was talking about how one of the tragedies of, of the, the pandemic is the social connection and that on average, uh, I think 35% of our connections have been lost more so with men than women. She said that research shows that women make connections through conversation and oftentimes men make connections through doing and, and activity. And so when doing an activity with people went away, they in 35% of the connections that men had were, were lost. We need to rebuild those. That's the basis of human purpose and enjoyment is the connection. So what what have you found to drive connect? Like you're the master at that. Like that's what you do. Like you get hired to to help build social connection and and eventually, potentially those uncommon connections. What can people do or what do we have to be mindful of other than, like you said, tactically start by asking questions?
1: Yeah, I think the, the first thing is start by being interested in other people. But the second thing is that i ask people all the time when is the last time you referred somebody in your industry or in another industry or just a friend or a neighbor when's the last time you referred somebody who actually got hired and paid money and if you don't know the answer to that then how can you expect anyone to ever refer you and the sad part and i had this conversation with someone this morning he said i heard he i know him he's a friend of mine but he heard me speak and he said i refer, i try every week to make a referral to my dentist to to anybody blah blah and he goes but i rarely get any referrals back and he said he tries to do you know dozens and dozens of them you know a year if not hundreds and i said have you gotten any referrals in the last couple of years and he said yes that turned into business and he said yes i said tell me about them one of them was the biggest piece of business he'd ever had and i said isn't that worth it you know, so what you made a hundred introductions for other people, but one person gave you a gig that turned into several ongoing referrals and gigs like that. I have a situation. I never would have made it as a speaker. If I hadn't had one specific person, I can track it. It's like patient zero. When you look at an epidemic, I can trace it back to patient zero Mm -hmm. uh, for a referral. And I was speaking at an event in Austin, Texas. I was not a full-time professional speaker. I was dreaming of it. And I was emceeing this event and something came up where we needed to kill time for 10 minutes in the middle of the program. And I won't go into the details, but I immediately grabbed the microphone, jumped into the audience and engaged everybody who was in the audience while something else was taking place on the stage. And afterwards, this gentleman came up to me and said, that was masterful. Do you do this for a living? And I fibbed a little bit and said, yes. And he said, you emcee conferences. And I said, like keynote conferences, but I can take this concept of connection and weave it in as the MC. And he goes, my boss should know you. I got his card. I didn't recognize the company name because it was a holding company, but his boss was the editor of CIO Magazine. She called me the next day and said, we're supposed to know each other. And I'm like, oh yeah. She hired me to speak at a conference. And then over the next three years, CIO Magazine used me 19 times hmm. as what I call being the conference catalyst, spurring people to network better at the thing. And that spun off something like 25 other pieces of business. So my whole career got launched because that one person in the audience referred me to somebody. So what's funny about that story is I didn't want to do the event I was hosting. I said no twice because it was unpaid and I didn't really care. And A friend of mine said, I would really like you to do this favor for me. And so as a favor, I said yes, and it really launched my whole career. So it's one of those things that you don't know where things are going to come from. So therefore, you've got to say yes to lots of people and and be out there just trying to, to do a good job. And you know, if you do it enough, people want to be around givers. There's enough takers out there in the world. So if you're a giver, if you're helping people, if you're saying yes, when you can, people notice it and they want to get in your orbit.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a valuable lesson is, as I think about a few things you've said. We have to rhetorically ask ourselves, are, are we doing this to push? Are we that pusher? Are we just pushing content out because we want people to have what we are delivering? Is there, there, is a, is there a reason? Or are we doing it for the purpose of and the power of the social interaction and the connections that we will make with real human beings through what our message is. Like you have clearly a real passion for for human interaction and, and connection and your business and speaking career is built on being the catalyst for the connection, which I think, w- which comes from a really good place. And it isn't just how do I push this out?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of pushing things out just like everybody else, but where the business really comes from is when I do it from a place of really trying to help and serve. Yeah. I love that. Now
0: that has led to actually you host uh, multiple podcasts. One of the, one of the ones that I've um, spent some time listening to is your podcast, uh, making at sea level, which is that, which is an awesome play on words, by the way. But one of the questions I had, right? Your goal. Well, let me ask you this. What's the goal of the podcast? Like how did it become and what is your purpose in, in, in providing those interviews?
1: So I started the show seven years ago. We're approaching 700 episodes. I do it twice a week. It was originally called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. And it was a way for me to interview successful business people because I figured if I interviewed 50 people, I was going to get inspired. So it was a six-month project for me to be able to access entrepreneurs and other business people to get ideas from them. I, In fact, I during the pandemic, one of the things I did, because my business kind of hit the skids because the live meetings business went away, I had a personal plan to talk to one smart person every day. Now, sometimes that was through the podcast I host. Sometimes it was just jumping on a Zoom call with somebody who I knew and admired. and, And I asked for advice. How do I rescue my career? How do I do something else? What do you think I should be doing? And I've talked to now a couple hundred smart people over the last year plus. And most of them didn't have ideas that resonated. Some of them had dumb ideas. Some had no ideas. But I got five or six ideas out of all those conversations that led me to being able to resurrect my speaking business as well as doing other things. So when I started the podcast, it was gonna be 50 interviews solely for me to get access to people. By the end of the first six months, I was starting to get, and it wasn't on this whole light. My podcast theme was not about human connection. It wasn't about your network and your brand. Probably should have been, had I known seven years ago that podcasting was gonna become as big as it is, and had I known it was gonna be a spinoff thing for my business. But it was an interview show of smart entrepreneurs but people heard me. I talked about the fact I was a speaker at sales meetings or association conferences, and they would call and say, what do you charge? And we talk. And I was spinning off business. So I'm not an idiot. So I kept the podcast going. And every year I spun off a couple of MC or keynote speaking gigs. And then a couple of years ago, one of my clients came to me and said, could we pay you to host our podcast? And so now I host three. I just signed a contract for a fourth podcast where I am the, the paid outside host bringing just my interview skills, my energy, and my knowledge of how to produce a podcast to organizations that that want to have shows. So it came about sort of as an accident to interview entrepreneurs, and now it's still going. So I changed the name to Making Waves at C-Level, the letter C, like CEO, CFO, last year when I went to work part-time for an executive search firm. So in the pandemic, one of the smart people I talked to said, come work for me. And so I do business development for a high-end executive search firm who helps companies find their senior leadership team. And so I changed the name of the podcast to match up with that side of my life because the entrepreneur angle didn't match up with doing the recruiting because I'm not looking for the people to fill the jobs. I'm looking for the first step is you find the companies who are looking to fill key roles. And so making waves at sea level became the title because it fit in with my career in executive search that is now uh, up and running a year later. Interesting.
0: Almost 700 plus interviews with some pretty bright, right? Some pretty bright entrepreneurs and some pretty bright leaders of, of businesses. Why is, why is making waves or shaking things up so important in, in, in business, do you think? We've already heard multiple times that you've made some waves or shook things up in, in your career trajectory or, or business strategy. Why, why do you think that's so important? What lessons could you share with us that maybe you've learned?
1: So there's a famous professional speaker friend of mine, a guy named Jay Baer. And Jay has a saying, same is lame. And Mm. so, if your company is just doing what all the competitors are doing, you're not going to stand out. You're not going to get ahead. Part of my background, my career in marketing, was I spent five years as the director of marketing and business development for two, what are called Amlaw 100 law firms, which are the 100 largest law firms in the United States. And I worked for two of them as their business development director for the city of Austin and Dallas. And What's weird about law firms is if all of their marketing is exactly like everybody else. If one firm puts the managing partner's bulldog in their ad, another firm will put the managing partner's cocker spaniel in their ad. Like, oh, well, obviously if a bulldog was a good ad, a cocker spaniel will be even better. And you know, it's like if you've ever taken little kids to play, someone kicks the ball to the left, both teams run to the left. Someone kicks the ball to the right, both teams run to the right that's the way many companies do their marketing and run their business is like well everybody does it this way so it must be right whereas if you watch professionals play soccer everybody has a different role and people do different things you know, some people hold back and some people go forward same thing is true in business so if we're doing everything our competitors do it's not going to be great and we've seen this in these tech companies they compete for talent as much as for as much as for clients and when they're competing for talent one of the things they try to do is create a great culture so early on Companies like Google and Salesforce and others in the Silicon Valley, they were having lunch rooms and foosball tables and Friday parties. Well, now if you work in that type of company, at least pre-pandemic, that was just expected. It no longer was what stood out. That just became, if everybody does what everybody does, it becomes the norm. So I think you got to shake things up. You got to make a little bit of waves or you're just going to be same as lame. That's a
0: valuable lesson. One that I wasn't expecting today from you, but that's awesome. Yeah. What do you think shows up when you're different? Well, it's the risks, right? There, I, I think what prevents us from doing that is, is being scared to maybe go out outside of your lane or the lane within the industry. What are the risks?
1: Well, I mean, if you're too different, people don't understand what you do. So there, there is a fine line. I think that as a professional speaker, if I dressed up as a clown and blue bubble, my, my law firm and accounting and other professional services clients probably would not hire me. So yeah, I wear a suit or at least a blazer when I go and speak to the types of businesses I speak to associations and, but we've gotten into a more casual world. And so some people, some speakers show up in jeans and a t-shirt. Well, one of the things I do is I ask every client, how do you want me dressed? And I have three different levels of how they can, it's their stage. I'll show up how they want. And what's interesting is a lot of them go, you'll really wear a suit. And I'm like, yeah. And they go, our CEO loves it when speakers wear suits, but so many don't these days. I'm like, it's your event. I'll wear whatever you want. So I'm. you want to be different. But you also need to stay within the realm of what your client needs to have. So I think there's a fine line in that. And yet, if you don't do something a little different, if you don't brand yourself, because I speak at conferences around this whole concept of human connection, one of the things I do that I sort of invented 14 years ago, 12 years ago, that now other people, some people do, but I'd never seen anyone else do it. I'd seen other people talk about networking and and human skills. But the thing I did is I came out and said, okay, halfway through my keynote, I go, I have an idea. Let's make this conference a human laboratory for the next three days. So I wanted to be in that first position and I would set the tone for the whole conference. And a client gave me a nickname, the conference catalyst. And so I would market myself to people who planned meetings saying, if you want human connection to be good, if you want people to have the skills at your cocktail party to leave their coworkers and go talk to other people, you need to hire me. And I would I had marketing materials that says, does your conference have a catalyst? So it wasn't so different that I was in a clown suit blowing bubbles, but I was giving them tools, not just to take back to the office, but to use at the happy hour that happened right after the opening keynote. So that was just a little different. And so if you can have a little differentiation, now they remember that. I still get business from people who Google the conference catalyst because that's all they remember. They don't remember my name but they remember that because it was a tad bit different. So I think it's finding that line between having something unique that's a little different, that stands out, that people can talk about, that people can remember and just being the same as everybody. I also
0: hear within your conversation, you are very true North. So although you have different verticals of your business and what you're doing with with a company, part-time, what you're doing with your speaking business and career and what you're doing with your podcast, they do go true north. They do all lead to this mission of the connection and and creating uncommon connection. And, And you create a message around, for instance, right? I will not leave here without thinking of you as the conference catalyst. And for many of our listeners, right, we are in spaces that we build businesses off conferences and and that's, that's, we will remember that if we need that. And, and, and listen, we all do like we conferences are for the purpose of, if we didn't need social interaction, we'd stick on zoom for the next three, four, five, seven years in the future. We'd think, Hey, this is great, but nobody thinks this is great. (laughs) Everybody is so ready to get back in, in face-to-face and and around people because that the, the connection is so necessary. I think we're going to need to learn it. Like your skills will become more
1: important because we need to relearn how to do from your lips to God's ears. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But I actually do agree that I think we've proven the last 16 months or so that we can deliver content very well over a virtual platform. And that is awesome that we can do that. And there will be pieces of virtual conferences and some hybrid that will go on forever that will be tied back to the advances we made in virtual during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. However, the human connection side, while there's a few outliers, there are people who say, no, Tom, I've made more contacts doing online networking than I ever did in person. So there are some, but most people agree that shared human experience that happens when you're having that serendipitous hallway conversation or that chat in the bar after the cocktail party is over and you meet that one person, it's like, poof, that was worth your entire, that one conversation was worth all the money and time you spent to go to the conference. That doesn't happen in a five-minute assigned Zoom breakout room where all of a sudden, you're you're in with somebody else. So I really do believe that experience matters and we have to, you can't plan an event and leave the networking as a second tier priority anymore, or you're gonna have second tier results. And if you have second tier networking, who's gonna come? They'll just buy the video.
0: Yeah, I think one of the words you just used validates the purpose of what you do is you are right that some people would argue that the efficiency of digital has led to more contacts, but I would argue that it has not led to more connection So the contact list may be long, but the connection, it happens face to face. And I think a lot of industries right now, many that we speak to in our community fear that digital or tech is removing them from the industry. Many of our people are in the real estate industry. The fact is, Like tech and and digital absolutely can add contacts and, and, but it's the human relationship that drives connection. I have one more question for you. I I came across uh, something while I was learning uh, about you after we got introduced and it said that, and I'm assuming it's okay for me to share, but you turned 50 recently. I'll say recently, and then you can, uh, you can quantify what recent means, but you turn 50 and um, here within our community, we we care greatly about living experientially. It's the, it's the purpose and mission of, of the work that we're doing, making sure that we realize that we can build big businesses while also building big experiential lives. And the age mattered to you, and you started to do or experience things that perhaps you never have. What happened at 50 and, and what decisions did you make? And, and what lessons have you learned that you can share with our, our community?
1: So, Chris, a couple things. This happened five years ago. I just turned 55. So, I'm now five years into this grand experience of ex- experiment of experiences. And I will tell you that it's more true now than it was then. I made a declaration on my 50th birthday that I was going to make age 50 to 75 the best years of my life. Now, I wasn't scared. I had a lot of friends I grew up with who were freaking out when they were getting close to turning 50. It didn't even phase me. When the AARP membership came at 50, I was like, oh, look at that. I get a discount on movies or whatever. And part of that reason was is I had older parents. So when I was born, my dad, my mom was 40, but my dad was 52 years old. And my dad was a pretty pragmatic guy. He raised me saying, look, you know, having an older dad, I could die when you're in high school or college, which by the way, that's just a sad thing to tell the kid, but he was really just, he wanted to prep me for what life was all about. And my mom ended up dying when I was 18. Hmm. And my dad said, wow, I'm so sorry. She was too young. That shouldn't have happened. And he goes, I don't know how long I'll be around, but I'm here for you. He was very cool. He was a good dad, I had a really good dad, but he was 70 when I was 18. And he just started living after about two years of really mourning. He and my mom had a good relationship. They'd been married when I was born 15 years. They had three teenage. I was that surprise kid that came along. You know what a surprise is? That's an accident that worked out okay because they liked me. But I don't even remember my dad until he's almost 60, right? I mean, if your first memories are when you're four or five years old, puts my dad at like 57, 58. It's true. He was super active. And he was widowed at 70. And at about 72, he just decided he made a proclamation that he could easily live another 10 years. He didn't want to be sad every day. And so he just started saying yes to things in his life. He started going out, he started dating, he started traveling, he started doing all kinds of things. And he ended up living until he was 99 years old. Wow. So, so when I turned 50, he'd been gone just a couple of years. And My thought was he made this proclamation at 70. Why wait? So I decided I'm going to make age 50 to 75 the best years of my life. And I got pushback on two fronts. People said, Tom, you've had a really good life. What's wrong? And I said, nothing, but I'm going to just have a better life. And the other thing is people said, your dad lived to be almost 100. What about age 75 to 100? And I said, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. I looked at 50 to 75 as this unique time. All studies show that's the biggest earning potential that people have the last 10 or 15 years we've been constantly bombarded with gurus and experts who talk about the millennials or gen z and how the whole world is about them and everything's changing but i think companies need to pay attention to their employees and how they hire employees from that age 50 to 70 or 75 age range because that's the most productive and the best like all the studies show for entrepreneurs it's like five times more successful for an entrepreneur over 50 than someone who's 25 the odds of failing Are much less if you're older. And so I started looking at this and I started saying, what didn't I do in my life? And there were a lot of things I discovered. I didn't say yes to things if I thought I would suck at them. So in my personal life and my career, I personally steered away from anything that scared me. I had a really successful career and I had a good life, but I said no to a lot of things. So I decided from now on, I'm going to just, my motto became try new things. And I have a little list here of some things I, I started, some things worked out and I kept with it, some didn't. But I took up running. I had never been an athlete. I was 30 pounds overweight. And by the time I was 50 and six months, I ran a half marathon and I'd lost 30 pounds. Wow. And I still run to this day. Pandemic, I put 10 pounds on, but I had kept them off for four years. And I'm going to take them off again now that we're on the other side of the pandemic. I'm super scared of heights, so one of the first things I did, I was in Las Vegas. I did that jump at the Stratosphere Hotel where you jump off the building on the 108th floor. I understand the expression. I was so scared. I almost pooped my pants. Totally get it. Not that close. And then I went zip lining in Costa Rica, which I never would have done because the heights really would have bothered me. I took surfing lessons, didn't like surfing, didn't ever surf again, but I tried it. That's what I tell everybody is try new things doesn't mean you have to do it forever. You go out and you try it. If if you feel like you almost drowned and you got hit in the head with a surfboard, don't do it again but at least i tried it i took up playing chess chess always seemed interesting but it seemed complicated and hard and then i realized you'd suck at it for years before you'd be any good i'm a couple of years into playing chess i have a son-in-law who is i mean he's not a grandmaster but he's on his way to that he's a math he's a mathematical genius he's one of the smartest 26-year-old mathematicians in the world and he loves playing chess he loves the strategy behind chess and he can beat me in 6 moves however I keep playing. I keep learning because I've got someone in my family who can teach me. Plus, I want to be able to share that with my son-in-law because he's a great guy. We don't have a lot in common because he's a mathematician. He works. He, he's a quantitative researcher for a hedge fund. I tell silly stories for a living and help companies find you know new executives. So we're not on the same intellectual level per se, but we have this in common and he's very patient teaching me. I started meditating every day for the last two years, 20 minutes a day, every day. If I hadn't started this before the pandemic, when my business cratered, I would have cried every day. I started studying Taoism because Eastern religion always interested me. So now I hired somebody to, I started doing online classes on what is Taoism about? The list is really long, but I'll leave you with this one. A couple of years ago, three years ago, I was in New York and I called a friend of mine who's a professional speaker and a professional comic. And I said, let's go out for a drink. And he said, oh, I'm going to open mic night, come with me. And I said, I would love to watch you work on new material." And he said, That's not what I'm inviting you to do. And I was 52 years old at the time. I said, There is no way I'm going to write a five minute set and go to a comedy club in New York and do an open mic night. And he said to me, Aren't you the guy who teaches try new things? And I was like, Damn it, I am. So I wrote a five minute set. I went with him. My name was drawn. I did the five minute set at a comedy club in Greenwich Village. And I'll be honest, it wasn't great. Had Jerry Seinfeld been there, he would not have been worried about job security because I had done this. But it pushed me way out of my comfort zone. And so I came back and I declared, I'm going to do 100 open mic nights in the next two years. And so once a week, whether I was traveling or I was home in Austin, I did an open mic night every week. And when the pandemic shut everything down, I was at 95 open mic nights. I took a year off because being COVID safe. I didn't think being in a comedy club, even though Austin and Texas bars were open in the fall before the vaccine, I didn't think hanging out with a bunch of millennials who were licking a microphone was like my best safety. I didn't think that was my best health choice, but once the pandemic ended, I went and I finished up those last five and now I've done 10 more. I do two open mic nights a week now and it has made me a better speaker. It's made me uh, uh, more playful in everything that I do. I'm not that great at comedy. I have been invited to be in five shows where I've had like a 10 minute set, but I'm not great. But by the time I've done like 600 of them, I'll probably be pretty good. So I'm keeping up with this longevity of that. And I'm now on the goal to do 100 open mic nights in the next year, which means twice will so give or take a little bit and then you know, see where it takes me. And if I got good enough, would I want to go be a, do professional comedy? Sure, but that's not what my goal is. My goal is what can I learn from doing this and all these other things that I'm trying over 50 that I never tried before. My regret is I didn't take up this idea of trying new things when I was 19.
0: You know, Tom, it's there's a message that's woven from the beginning of our conversation to right now. And whether it's really difficult decisions you made um, with your daughter, whether it's your perspective on what connection relationship is, whether it's how you look at the next phase, the current phase of your life, you play the long game, right? You've used that, that expression, you use the word longevity, you use like you, you are a futurist in that you see yourself today and you see where you want to be or where you could be. And you're not afraid of saying yes today. And if it leads to something awesome, if it doesn't awesome, like it's the experience and the journey, but it's playing the long game that has has led you to a successful career. And and it's an incredible message for our community. Where where can we find you? If someone wants to uh, bring you in as a, as a a catalyst for their conference. So where do we go? And I'll make sure we have your information in the show notes as well.
1: So the simplest place is just my website. It's sort of the hub for most of the things I do, not quite everything, but it's tomsinger.com. That's T-H-O-M. S-I-N-G-E-R.com. And then I'm on all the social medias just at Tom Singer, T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R. So you can find me most of those places. Awesome. Well, we appreciate
0: your time today. We appreciate what you shared. Lots of lessons, right? Life lessons for sure. Business lessons for sure. Future lessons for all of us. Just a great gratitude for you spending some time with our community and I look forward to getting off the screen and meeting in person here real soon.